Hello and welcome to The World's Last Night. My name is James. You're probably wondering by now why the podcast is titled The World's Last Night. I will do probably an entire segment on that later. Um, a hint that probably would not surprise you is it comes from an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote. So, today we're in chapter 43. I'm going to start in verse 1. We remember that uh, during the first year of the famine, the brothers came to visit Joseph to get some grain. They didn't know it was Joseph. They went home in fear of this Egyptian authority. And uh, Joseph kept Simon and basically said, you need to come back with Benjamin or I'm not giving you Simon back. Well, Jacob would not let that happen out of his fear. So that's where it ended last. So verse 43, we're going to probably pick it up in the next year of the famine or later in the famine. Now the famine in the land, not verse 43, chapter 43. Now the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us some food. But Judah said to him, the man specifically warned us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. So Jacob is finally uh, succumbing to this. Apparently the famine was much long, uh, lasted much longer than he anticipated. He thought he could just get by with what they brought back. Didn't care enough about Simon to, to risk sending Benjamin to get him back. But things have gotten worse, and so now they're wanting to go down. Now, take note, Judah is actually stepping up. Judah's actually being a leader. He's always been kind of a leader, but before he was a corrupt leader wanting to sell Joseph into slavery. But now he's sort of correcting his dad, who is acting a little bit of fool here. All right, verse 6. Why did you cause me so much trouble, Israel asked? Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? Which is probably a really dumb question to ask. This is just someone who um, is a complainer. <laughs> he's, he's probably asked this question before. They've probably debated it many times. Verse 7, they answered, the man kept asking about us and our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How could we know that he would say, bring your brother here? Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our children. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable if I do not bring him back to you. And set him before you. I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not wasted time, we could have come back twice by now. So, Judah's stepping up to the plate. He's basically offering his own life as ransom if Benjamin does not come back safely. This is, this is the first good thing we've seen him do in scripture, really. After the whole Tamar incident. After selling his brother into slavery. So, it's good to see him stepping up. Now... Something that commentators like to point out about these brothers is that we have an adversary, we call him Satan, which just means the accuser, and as the New Testament says, he goes back and forth upon the earth like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, he is not omniscient, which means Satan is a uh, being that does not know everything. He's not like God. God knows everything. God knows the future. Satan doesn't. He's limited. He's a, a powerful angel. I mean, from scripture we get that. He's a powerful demon. But he is not as powerful as God. 
And he can only use his cunning and wisdom to predict what the future holds, just like man might. He's probably He probably knows a little bit more, you know, probably a lot more on the spiritual side of things than man does. But he is not God. So he knows that God is up to something, though. You know, because he was there in the Garden of Eden. He's the one that got man to, tempted man to begin with to fall, then accused the brethren, right? He constantly is the accuser of the brethren, reminding God about humanity's sin and holding God to his just nature, basically reminding God that he has to be just and thus he has to punish humanity, which is true. But God had his other plans, right? God made a promise that an offspring of Eve would stomp on the head of Satan. And as Christians, we know that this offspring is Jesus Christ. It takes some time for him to get here, but he eventually does conquer sin and death and and the power that Satan has over the brethren, over the believers. So at this point in history, though, Satan doesn't want this to happen. And in fact, you can see how he is working behind the scenes to corrupt all the way through even the New Testament. He takes Jesus up on a high mountain, you know, tries to manipulate him whenever Jesus is at his weak, weakest to worship him, to bow down before him instead of God. Jesus rebukes him with scripture, basically says, you know, we're only to worship our, our God, no one else. So you can imagine that as we are reading this about what's going on in, in the, the world of humanity throughout scripture, Behind the scenes, there is an adversary who's weaving his own plan to derail humanity. He uses temptation, um, trickery, he is deceptive, he uses condemnation. Every trick in the book, um, he pulls out. And so when he sees that this covenant is being passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, he is probably wondering which of these twelve... Um, men, brothers, are going to be the next one in line. And how can I corrupt them? How can I ruin them? How can I kill them so I can end it here? So commentators like to talk about that perhaps Satan used envy, the brother's sin of Joseph, to get Joseph um, murdered. And of course, it didn't go that far, but he was sold into slavery. And so, it is not um, without merit to suggest that Satan probably thought Joseph was going, going to be the one that the Messiah would come through. And he thought he had done away with him. Well, we know, looking on this side of history, that it's actually Judah. Judah's the one the Messiah comes through. So, here Judah is actually stepping up. And this might be kind of an oh crap moment for Satan um, and obviously, whenever Judah has kids, he's going to find out that, it, oh, it, it was an oh crap moment. I, I did not know which brother it was. So he just guessed off human wisdom. In any case, this is all um, subject to scrutiny. This is opining. It's not written in scripture. But I'm just sort of broadening the scope to remember that, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We, we wage a spiritual war. And we do have an adversary. All right, verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs and take them down to the man as a gift. 
some balsam and some honey, aromatic gum and resin, pistachios and almonds. Ooh, pistachios. Take twice as much money with you. Return the money that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back at once to the man. May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, if I am deprived of my sons, then I am deprived. So Judah is... Not not Judah, I'm sorry. Jacob is doing the same thing he did whenever he went to try to curry favor with Esau. He's sent gifts. He's, a, he's big on trying to win people over with gifts. And so he is sending them with twice as much money. So now the brothers are going with 20 silver pieces. Now remember, they sold Joseph for 20 silver pieces. So this is sort of interesting. But he's sending them with, with 20 silver pieces. He is sending them with all kinds of produce from the land as gifts to placate the Egyptian, who we know is Joseph. And um, likewise is praying that God is is merciful and is merciful through this man. We could imagine that Jacob has up until this point been praying that God would break this famine and provide, and yet he hasn't. So out of necessity, Jacob is having to do this. He's been driven to this. And as he will find out, it's actually part of God's plan. So, verse 15. The men took this gift, double the amount of money, and Benjamin. They made their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, Take the men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. But the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, We have been brought here because of the money that was returned in our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us, seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. So they approached Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the doorway of the house. <clears throat> so, they are still afraid, and they, they still think they're going to be considered thieves for having uh, taken the money back with them, even though... I guess they just don't know that Joseph is the one that ordered their money be returned. Um, so this is very, it's very weird. They're very weird circumstances because here this powerful Egyptian who would not dine with Hebrews normally, that would be a big no-no. He's actually inviting him into the, in his house, having an animal slaughtered for them for a meal. He's inviting them to a meal. This is a type for Jesus because this is exactly how Jesus approaches us. He invites us to dine with him. He invites us to the supper table to break bread with him, to drink wine. He has prepared a feast for us in heaven. And this is despite our sin, despite the fact that we are enemies of him, despite the fact that, and I'm not saying that Christians are enemies of him, but in our dead fallen state before becoming believers, we were, and yet God still invited us to the table. Okay, verse 20. So they're talking to the steward at the doorway. They said, Sir, we really did come down here the first time only to buy food. When we came to the place where we lodged for the night and opened our bags of grain, each one's money was at the top of his bag. It was a full amount of our money, and we have brought it back with us. We have brought additional money with us to buy food. We don't know who put our money in the bags. So they're really worried. Then the steward said, May you be well. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your bags. I received your money. Okay, so that even throws me for a loop. 
That's pretty interesting. Wow. Okay. So this is what I this is the only thing I could think of. That they paid the money for the grain. The person, the accountant in charge of that actually took the money, but Joseph out of his own money gave them money back. That's the only way I can square that outside of a miracle as how that went down because Joseph ordered their money be returned. So he must have done a little a loop-de-loop. Or he returned their money and then gave money to the steward on their behalf out of his own storehouse. Either way, that's a generous man. That's a good man. And it lets us know it, it is actually another kind of example of that our salvation can't be bought. It's a free gift. You might think I'm stretching things there, but that's the feeling I get from reading that. Then he brought Simon out to them. The man brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and got feed for their donkeys. Since the men had heard that they were going to eat a meal there, they prepared their gift for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift they had carried into the house, and they bowed to the ground before him. So we are returning once again to the dream that Joseph had as a 17-year-old. His brothers are bowing before him. God has brought this around full circle. He asked if they were well, and he said... How is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? So this is this is weird. This is this is probably taking them back because this is not how an authority of Egypt would associate with people and uh, with Hebrews. And we'll talk a little bit about that actually at the end of this chapter. It's going to be probably the big takeaway. They answered, "Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive." And they bowed down to honor him. So that's probably good news for Joseph to know that his dad's still alive. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother, and he was about to weep. So this is really high drama here. Joseph probably never had a relationship with Benjamin, his younger brother. Um, He was probably too young at the time. And so now he is being reunited and he's probably thinking of all that he missed out on in helping to raise his younger brother and so he actually has to run out of the room so they don't see him cry he went into an inner room to weep then he washed his face and came out regaining his composure he said serve the meal they served him by himself his brothers by themselves and the egyptians who were eating with him by themselves because egyptians could not eat with hebrews since that is abhorrent to them They were seated before him in order by age, from the firstborn to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and they got drunk with Joseph. (laughs) This last paragraph, there's a lot I want to talk about. I want to just dive right into the big takeaway from this chapter, in my opinion. It is the fact that uh, they served Joseph by himself. They serve the brothers by themselves, and they serve the Egyptians by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, since that is abhorrent to them. Think about the big picture of this. All this time that these brothers, the Hebrews, have been living in the land of Canaan, they've had a serious issue of commingling with the pagan people surrounding them. Intermarriage, uh, wanting to be married... Uh, and give their sons to, in marriage and daughters in marriage and vice versa. 
And we've talked about this. It's not the marriage that's the problem. It's the fact that when you are unequally yoked, you are more likely to be led astray from your faith in God. And if the person you are married to actually worships false gods, then you are more likely to be tempted to do so yourself. Maybe out of respect for them. Maybe it's actually a tempting religion. So, but here we have Joseph going on ahead of all these people into Egypt through divine providence. So God has worked out through his divine providence. He's used even the sins of these brothers to work out their salvation by sending Joseph ahead of them, raising Joseph up and exalting Joseph and allowing him to institute the plan that would provide in this famine for his own household. And it would also be the means for reconciliation to redeem that sin, to have returned what that sin had cost him, which was his relationship with his family. And also these other people, his brothers suffering with the secret thoughts of their sin, the condemnation that Satan, who was the accuser would bring upon them. So God has, is not going to stop here as we're going to find out. The Hebrews are going to come into this land and they are going to live in this land for 400 years and eventually become slaves in this land. Yet, the culture of this land is exactly what they need to be sanctified and separate. Because in, in Canaan, there's a lot of co-mingling amongst the different faiths. But in Egypt, it's abhorrent for the Egyptians to even eat with people from other lands. So, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. The Hebrews are, are probably very hairy. Egyptians, as you know, don't like body hair. They shave it. <laughs> um, but ultimately, they believe that they are, in a sense, better chosen by God. Like, God's, they're God's people. Egyptian God's people. Chosen by the divine. And so, they won't mingle with other peoples. This is a, this is a different kind of thing, though. This is more like uh, uh, how the Japanese were in, during World War II. This is a pride thing, um, not a separation so that they're careful not to worship false gods, but a separation based on race and ethnicity. It's a type of racism um, because they believe that they are greater and better. I guess that should put that in because of their race. So this is actually going to be used, this culture, to protect the Hebrews from co-mingling and co-marrying and being led astray to worship these false gods that the Egyptians use. So keep that in mind. It's actually, it's like the perfect scenario for this baby tribe of, he of Hebrews to be placed in because they need this kind of protection at this stage in their faith. Okay, secondly, um, they were seated in order of age from firstborn to youngest. Now, no doubt Joseph had this done intentionally. It says the men looked at each other in astonishment because they recognized this. There's no way that this guy just guessed this, right? So they, they think it's, it's a sign from God or there's something super fishy about Joseph to be able to guess this. And then finally, portions were served to them from Joseph's table. And Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. So here it is believed that Joseph is testing the brothers to see how they respond to the youngest having favoritism. So Benjamin is getting five times a portion. This is a lot like how Joseph um, got the 
multicolored coat from his dad. And he's so he's probably seeing if these brothers have actually changed their ways, if they've actually repented from their envious, sinful ways. Um, and we don't really have an ending to that. We just know that they were they all got drunk and were merry. So, which is kind of funny, but this is their reunion. Keep in mind, Joseph has not revealed to them who he is yet. That's the end of the chapter. So maybe in the next one, we'll, we will see what unfolds in that regard. I think this was a great chapter, though. So until next time, this is James from The World's Last Night. Mm-hmm.